listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast, the companion podcast to the book Scored to Death, conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and the goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. Though today's interview is with a person whose experience with film scoring is limited, I'm a big fan of his work. I always love chatting with him, and he will undoubtedly have a bright future creating music for film if he decides to pursue it further. And he may just be co-scoring the next sequel to one of horror's most popular franchises later this year. Cody Carpenter is the son of veteran genre film and television actress Adrian Barbeau, and one of my biggest cinematic heroes, and someone I had the honor of interviewing for my book, John Carpenter. For years, Cody has been contributing to other people's albums, as well as producing his own synth-based music under both his real name and his handle, Ludrium. In 2005 and 2006, he composed the music to his father's contributions to the series Masters of Horror, with the scores for the episodes Cigarette Burns and Pro-Life. In recent years, he worked with his father and kink guitarist Dave Davies' son, Daniel Davies, on the albums Lost Themes, Lost Themes 2, and John Carpenter Anthology, Movie Themes, 1974 through 1998. Promotional tours for these albums found him touring the U.S. and Europe with his father and Davies, playing their own original material as well as new arrangements of some of his father's most beloved themes. In this episode, we are going to chat at length with Cody about his musical influences, working with and for his father, touring, creating his own music, including his latest album, Cody Carpenter's Interdependence, and much, much more. Okay, so let's get to it. Well, Cody, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Some people that are listening to the show might not realize that uh, you're in in some ways back by popular demand because uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, about a year ago, you came on the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers podcast to talk about your music. At that time, you had an album called Alternate Universe. Black and hate Flurrying around us like a snake. That uh, yes. I still listen to to this day. Oh, thank you very it's, much. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a great album. And then we talked, uh, of course, we talked a lot about your dad. We had a very revealing conversation about your father. <laughs> you were a good sport. Mm-hmm. You revealed a guilty pleasure movie in the Carpenter household mm-hmm. that people will have to go listen to that podcast to find out. But we also talked a lot about Transformers, the movie, right? and uh, Ralph Bakshi, and uh, kind of your love for mostly animated cinema. Mm-hmm. But today we're going to dive into your music career. Uh, you have a new album out called Cody Carpenter's Interdependence. Yes. Which uh, we're going to circle back around and talk a lot about at the end of the, towards the end of the show. Mm-hmm. But uh, up front, I wanted to just talk to you about kind of your general music career and your love for music. First, we'll start off with you create music under two names, Ludrium and Cody Carpenter. Mm-hmm. And this one is Cody Carpenter and alternate universe was also Cody Carpenter, but you had something in between 
uh, infiltrate the the mothership, which was Ludrium. What's going forward? How do you uh, foresee these two musical identities showing themselves in your music? Yeah, um, I've uh, I've had to think about this for a lot, and I've I've actually gone back and forth. Um, so in the past, I just uh, I used the name Ludrium just because I didn't want to use my personal name, and I just wanted to make something. Uh, a handle or you know uh whatever you whatever you call it um but now i kind of i feel like i should be using my actual name uh so for the instrumental stuff uh i decided i want to use oh, it'll be under the cody carpenter name and going forward uh for anything that uses vocals i think i'm going to use the ludrium name which actually uh is confusing because you're right that alternate universe was actually a cody carpenter release but I only put it out on Bandcamp, so I can actually change that. So I've, <laughs> I've uh, retroactively changed it to a Ludrium album. Oh, okay. Retroactive. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, it's uh, that uh, alternate universe, like I said, it's something that I still listen to. It's kind of got a, it's got more of a pop feel than some of the other mm-hmm. stuff you've, you've released. And like you said, it has vocals on it, which some of your stuff doesn't, like the new album doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, definitely has... You know, it's it's definitely going with that kind of current trend of 80s synth wave, synth pop feel. Yeah. It's got a really good vibe about it. I really like that album a lot. And I like the new one, too, but they're totally different. Oh, thank you. Yes, they are different. <laughs> but uh, before we dive into talking about interdependence, I want to talk about where did your love of music start? Well, you know, it started, uh, I think, well, hopefully the same with most people. When you're very, very young, uh, you know, my dad is obviously uh, a musician and a composer, and um, he loves music himself. And so he played me uh, music that he loved when I was young. Uh, you know, he's a big fan of uh, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Beach Boys, a lot of the, the music that uh, he loved when he was young. He used to play, to, uh, used to play for me, likewise, uh, at my mom's, uh, she would play a lot of the music that she loved for me. That's sort of where it came from. Um, what kind of music was Adrian Barbeau into when you were growing up? Well, you know, she uh, she's into uh, a little bit different stuff from my dad. Um, you know, she, she likes a little bit more kind of folk music stuff and uh, some Broadway stuff. I remember I was a big fan of uh, the musical Chess, uh, which was written by the guys from ABBA. Yeah, yeah. My mom definitely introduced me to that kind of stuff. I, I take it you took lessons or you self-taught when it comes to keyboards and piano. Uh, yeah, piano, I actually, I had lessons, uh, I think, <laughs> I, uh, if I can remember correctly. Um, but, I, you know, I never, I never liked to practice, uh, and I was a very bad student. Um, so I really just, uh, I would just mess around on the, on the piano. I'd just play whatever I want instead of practicing something like, a, you know, a proper student. But yeah, I, d- I did have lessons. Yeah, Billy Joel describes a very similar uh, way of piano lessons, where he didn't want to actually play what he was supposed to play, but he was good at faking it. <laughs> yeah, because because his, his mom didn't know the difference, so he would just play something that sounded like Beethoven. Oh, really? Oh, wow! Until, and, <laughs> until he got to the, the lessons, and then it was revealed that he wasn't practicing at all. Oh, yeah. I think for most, I would imagine for everybody, for the most part, that our musical influences and kind of our early passions come from our parents. A lot of people, especially when the book came out and I was promoting that, and now that the podcast's come out, I've done interviews kind of to promote the podcast and everybody wants to know 
where kind of my love for film music comes from. And for me as well, it stems from like my parents and just music in general. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up in a household where we listened to everything from, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra to cream to, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals to film music. Uh, You know, I, I, I often, uh, recite it. It, when people ask me, it's like one of the things I do remember, like like eating dinner to Vangelis's score to Chariots of Fire when I was little. Oh yeah, wow! <laughs> and getting in the getting in the car and demanding that my dad put on John Williams' score for Superman into the tape deck in the car, like every time we got in the car, when, <laughs> when we had that. That's cool. To me, it was just music. It was like it wasn't that there was film music and then there was rock right. music and this kind of stuff. Right. Did your father have any influence in that you pursuing piano and synth-based music? Because he's become bit of a bit of an icon when it comes to his style of music. And sometimes I don't know if this trend of the synthwave stuff, especially the scores, there's always like Carpenter-esque. It's a Carpenter-esque score. I often don't know because I haven't interviewed them yet. I'm hoping I will interview some of these guys to know if they're going for a carpenter type sound or is this just that our ear is trained to hear carpenter and that, and so mm. is that audience projected or is that actually the uh the intent of the composer but for you basically everything that i've heard of yours is very kind of synth driven and and so when did that come about i would imagine if i had to guess i would say your teens that you got into that kind of stuff yeah actually yeah you're right um and uh, uh you know i i i agree with you about the whole Carpenter-esque uh, idea. I think, I think in some interview, my dad said, you know, uh, or my dad was asked, "What do you think about all all these uh, artists and composers that list you as a influence in the whole Carpenter-esque idea?" And he said, "You know, these guys don't make music like I do. Uh, it's completely different style. Uh, they just happen to be using synths." I think it was something that that he <laughs> yeah, yeah he said. Yeah, I I I, I agree and. But yeah, for for me, you're right. I think it was. Uh, you're right. It's probably about in my teens when I, I really started to get into music that was kind of synth based, or uh, you know, that was kind of the main instrument. Especially with uh, a lot of the uh, '70s and progressive rock stuff that that I I loved back then and still love now. You know, that was kind of they really accepted the whole synth um, sound into that music. You know, like what specifically? What bands were you into? I really loved Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and uh, Genesis uh, from the the '70s incarnation of Genesis. Also, I was just listening yesterday and and forgot how much I loved. Uh, there's a group. There was a group called UK with uh, Eddie Jobson was the keyboard player. He also played electric violin. A little bit later in the '70s, uh, right before I think the whole genre kind of was uncool. <laughs> um, but but uh, yeah, that uh, all that stuff. Uh, was really uh was really big for me i think last time we talked on on my other podcast we talked a little bit about goblin yes when did you discover their music oh yeah that was probably from the soundtrack to suspiria that was probably when i first heard them uh or maybe before that with dawn of the dead i'm not sure but um yeah they you know and then they were heavily influenced by you know the uk groups yeah uh, early 70s so it's all it's all just one big mass of awesomeness when it, you know, when it, for me anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were one of my 
favorite bands of all time and i and i think that's kind of you know where we were both talking about them uh, in our previous interview just a big influence on me big influence on the book that i wrote uh yeah including your dad was was a huge influence as well but uh it's definitely it's cool that that stuff is kind of cool again <laughs> yeah you know it's it's interesting it, i think i'm not sure if it's gone if it's gone back to that yeah. stuff in particular i don't know maybe maybe you have a better opinion on this but like i don't know if people are really doing goblin nowadays i don't know if people are really doing the you know escape from uh, new york john carpenter soundtracks yeah, really yeah. i think it's a little different don't you think yeah no i i I, that I yeah I totally agree. It's it's not so much that people are doing it, but there's like a market for it that you can go on tour with your dad and sell out shows, right. and and that Goblin can tour America and places like Australia for the first time <laughs> and, and do pretty well on tour. You know, it's uh, right. Oh yeah, I didn't know that. That's- it's in that way. It's awesome that there's an audience for it, and I think the internet has a ton to do with that. I think just sure. One thing we should say up front, and and uh, it's certainly not uh, a negative thing, but Cody is not a huge horror fan for the listeners. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but, not huge. Not but, huge. But we won't hold that against him. Actually, <laughs> the truth is a lot of the composers I've talked to, uh, we don't always talk about it, but um, very few of the composers, especially the older generation, actually like horror movies. The only... Really? Um it you know it's kind of a place where they found work and they were good at it and hmm. Christopher Young he was a horror fan he did like Hellraiser and uh, mm-hmm. stuff like that the only guy who really set out to do specifically horror movie that I can think of that I've interviewed is Joseph Bashara who I know you also know yes and actually uh, he worked a little bit with myself and my dad on uh, one of the masses of horror things he kind of he did a little bit of mixing for us um he's a really cool guy as you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah joseph's great he's he's become a pretty good friend of mine and he's been responsible for some of the interviews that i've gotten for the podcast and that he's introduced me to people and been nice enough to kind of talk me up to them because we had such a good experience doing the book and we've become friends from that experience yeah he's awesome i should clarify uh you know i used to actually be a really big horror fan when i was younger i was really into uh you know, a lot of the classics. Dead Alive was one of my favorites when I was younger. But, you know, as I got older, uh, it was weird. I, I kind of just kind of stopped watching uh, horror movies. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's just that I'm just not into the modern horror stuff. Because, you know, I still remember a lot of the older movies pretty fondly. I You know, it's hard and I, I can't really describe why. Uh, I'm just not really into it as much as I used to be. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that happens to a lot of people. I think for a lot of people, and I think it's why it has such a passionate audience, is that most of us kind of discover horror in our, in our tween years, mm-hmm. really, when it's, it's a little bit taboo. Right. It's a little bit dangerous and we don't necessarily are supposed to be watching it and we do find it some of it scary. And uh, so I think it it makes a big impact on us. And I think some of us end up carrying that into adulthood and feel a great amount of nostalgia for it. Right. And become just kind of horror fanatics. And then others have nostalgia for it, but just don't continue to pursue it. And I think it's probably that way with a lot of things, not just horror movies. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I think I think you're right. You know, it's 
because there's such strong, powerful experiences that, you know, uh, there's a lot of nostalgia associated with those kind of experiences, whether it's music or movies or whatever. But, you know, horror is really powerful. And especially when you watch it when you're young, that can really stick with you for, you know, the rest of your life. You know, and it's, I think it's one of the reasons why the music and like your dad's music has kind of had this huge resurgence is because I think the music goes hand in hand with it. You know, we listen to the music and I think in a lot of ways we kind of relive that nostalgia right. through the music. We don't necessarily need the movies. Right. That's but, right. But uh, you are, I, I want, I forget the, I forget exactly what you said when not, it wasn't even in the last time we, we, I interviewed you. It was in prep for it, and we were talking about what movies we would talk about. And you said something along the lines of that, like, Transformers the movie is more than a movie for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. (laughs) Which is amazing. And I think think all of us have movies that are like that for us. Uh, And I've heard you mention in a couple of other interviews that the music of Vince DiCola has been a a big influence as well. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about him, because he really didn't score that many films. Um, right. Of course, Transformers he did, and he did Rocky Four, which is a great score as well. Yeah. But I would love to hear about what was it that you latched onto, uh, how's, how it's influenced your current stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, so actually, um, you know, uh, Vince DiCola himself has listed uh, Keith Emerson uh, as a huge influence on him. Um, so, you know, it's all connected there. And I, I remember when... Uh, uh, Keith Emerson passed away, you know, uh, on Facebook, Vince DiCola wrote a, a really long post about, you know, how much he meant to him and all that kind of stuff. So I sort of, obviously watching the Transformers or Transformers, the movie when I was younger, that was kind of my first, uh, exposure to that kind of music. And so I got into Emerson, Lake and Palmer later. Uh, so I kind of went through it backwards, but anyways, yeah. So my first ex- exposure to Vince DiCola's music was obviously the Transformers, and then I uh, watched Rocky IV. And you're right, he hasn't scored a lot of other, you know, really big movies, uh, or, or just movies at all, yeah. after that. But he has done a lot of other music that, if you look hard enough, you can find. He did a, uh, an album of kind of progressive rock music that's available on Bandcamp now. At, in, uh, the group is called Thread, but I think, yeah. I think he wrote all the music. Anyways, um, he's he's worked a lot with other people as well, and then he had Storming Heaven. He had a lot. He's he's continued to record. He just hasn't necessarily been pursuing film music. That's right. That's right. Um, and I, I try as hard as I can to find you know all all his stuff because it it all seems to be really. I really seem to enjoy all the stuff that he does. Um, he did he did a thing with the guys from T Square. Uh, There's an album uh, T Square Plus that he plays, and you ju- you can just hear his style it just comes through so clearly and i just love i just love his uh his playing his writing everything when did you decide that uh you wanted to pursue music kind of more seriously yeah that's a good question i you know i i don't even know if i ever really have decided that and i'm not even sure if i'm (laughs) i'm doing it now Uh, i'm just kind of going with where things are taking me i you know, I used to work uh, in Japan. I was I was there for about five years doing work completely unrelated to music, and then that stopped. And I I came back to LA, and I was kind of I, I didn't really know what was going to happen next. I didn't have a job or anything like that. And then my dad 
said, you know, let's, uh, or no, my dad told me that, you know, they were going to release this album, the, the Lost Themes album, and, and kind of the music stuff has just kind of taken off from there. So, you know, I haven't really made a conscious decision <laughs> to be doing it. Yeah, it's... Uh, well, that's, you know, that's interesting because in a way it's beautiful that that uh, you know, that you can just kind of go the, where the wind takes you. And right now music seems to be where it's taking you. Yeah. I mean, I, I had I had worked with my dad, you know, earlier on, you know, the Masters of Horror stuff. But that didn't really turn into anything else, strangely. So, yeah, yeah, I've just kind of been going where I've been needed. And thankfully, I've been needed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that would would be terrible if, if nobody needed me for anything and then I have don't have a job. Well, since you brought it up, I would love to talk to you about working with your dad. You know, you, you're credited as playing some synthesizers on Ghosts of Mars. And mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned, you composed the music for his two episodes of Masters of Horror, Cigarette Burns and pro-life mm -hmm. when did you start i can only imagine that at some point you started kind of hanging out in the studio when your dad was recording stuff yeah you know i i remember being on the set of several movies when he was filming um and i do remember being in the studio of uh or at least just coming to visit while my dad was making the music for for example like on vampires i think yeah I think I visited the studio on that one, yeah. Yeah, did you get to meet, because uh, your dad had a hell of a band for that. He had uh, yes. the Texas Toad Lickers, but, <laughs> the yeah. but uh, they're some of my favorite musicians of all time, and I've had the honor of interviewing some of them. Like, I interviewed Steve Cropper. The Texas Toad Lickers were your dad, Steve Cropper on guitar, mm -hmm. uh, Duck Dunn, Donald Duck Dunn, I think, uh -huh. and Skunk Baxter. So a real mm -hmm. kind of, you know, powerhouse band of of polished studio guys did you get to meet those guys you know i didn't i wasn't there for when they were doing all that stuff unfortunately but that's awesome that you got to interview everybody yeah i got to interview steve i used to i wrote for a blues website for i don't know three or four years and he had an album come out and i interviewed him and of course we talked all about the stuff you know his stacks days and working with albert king and and of course, the new the album that he was promoting. But I did have to ask him what it was like working on with your dad, right? <laughs> on vampires. What did he say? I have to ask you a little bit of a selfish question because I don't think a lot of people are going to be interested in this question. But I personally am very interested in knowing what it was like working with John Carpenter on the score of Vampires. <laughs> I'm a wow. big I'm a big Carpenter fan, and I, I've always liked his scores, and I think the score for Vampires is really great. Uh, well, the experience of it, I can tell you that I had trouble sleeping for about three weeks after we did that movie trip. And uh, the fact that here you're meeting a guy who is basically a superhero in the film business, and he's like hanging out with us at night, and we'd go have a have a cocktail or something, and hang around and talk and tell stories, and he just became one of the guys for two weeks. But we'd get in there and start working on this morbid music that was vampirish, I guess you would say. And it, those melodies would haunt, they'd haunted me. I mean, I couldn't get to sleep. They'd just keep running in my head. I go, golly. Because that's a, it's a fairly morbid movie. It's, uh, there's a lot to that. It's different than your, just your old science fiction vampire movie of the past. Uh, I don't know, you know, how it was rated or how it actually did. I just know I've seen it on TV a few times. 
And uh, it's just a strange script. It's, it's amazing. And that music is, whoa. So it, it, it was a great experience. Uh, it wasn't the first movie track we ever did, but working with him, and he was, you know, creating most of the music and the melodies and all that. So uh, we were honored to be there, and it was a lot of fun working with him in the studio. He was such a giving guy, and and uh, he would let you embellish whatever you wanted to do, and here's my idea, run with it. And he wasn't real bossy or any of that kind of thing. He, he was just fun to work with. But, uh, you know, our connection there, I think, was through uh, Bruce Robb, uh, the owner of Cherokee Studios, where I had worked for many, many years when I lived in L.A. And uh, Bruce gave me the call, and he said, uh, I'm working with John on this movie. And uh, when I told him that I knew you guys, he said, oh, man, you know, we could get them to play on the, on the soundtrack. And he said, well, I'll probably let me make some calls. So I came running. When Bruce called me, I said, are you kidding when you need me out there? <laughs> I'll book a flight tomorrow. Let me know. He was a great interview. He was one of those interviews where just had a good rapport and that it was like we had known each other for a long time. It was much more, it, it almost felt more like two friends, like talking after we hadn't seen each other for a long time. Oh, yeah. Which was very weird, but awesome. And that, that that's happened a few times uh, with people when I've interviewed them. But he had just, we had a good chemistry and he's a you know he's he's an idol of mine and i asked him i said do you have any uh advice for you know rhythm guitar players out there and he said <laughs> don't drop your pick yeah excellent but uh you did score cigarette burns yes how did that come about how did your dad present that to you and i would love to talk about Oh, sure. That experience, scoring something. Because I would imagine that's probably the first thing you've scored. Yes, you're right. The first real real thing anyways. Um, let's see. How did that happen? So, yeah. So, I guess my dad was offered the project. I don't know. I don't know. My dad didn't want to do the music or he – I'm not really sure why he offered me the job. You know, I'm, I don't really remember very clearly, but – I was uh, more than happy to to do that. Um, I initially, I I thought maybe we were going to do it together, but it ended up I was just basically doing it by myself. At that time, uh, my dad did a lot of the soundtracks at uh, Cherokee Studios in Hollywood, and um, that's where they did a lot of the recording and stuff like that. Yeah. And so uh, we set it up. So I went down to the studio and you know brought some keyboards and some gear and stuff like that, and um, I uh, recorded it with, uh, let's see, what was I using back then? I think I had, like, the Mini Moog reissue. We used a lot of uh, acoustic piano on that one as well, and some prepared piano, uh, that kind of stuff. Just knocked it out, and then, um, I sat, you know, I played it for my dad, and he had some notes, and we went back and changed some stuff, and that's pretty much how it happened. Uh you know, my memory's not so good, but uh, <laughs> I th- there, it, was, it was really pretty simple and pretty quick, I think. Well, you're in a rare group of composers that, you know, you're in you're in company with a Neo Morricone and <laughs> Jack Nietzsche. And, uh... Yeah, when you put it like that, it's, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. You know, I never really thought about it like that. <laughs> you're, you're one of the few people that has scored uh, John Carpenter projects. You know, I, now that you mention, I, I really have no idea why my dad offered me 
uh, that job. <laughs> well, I mean, clearly he he had confidence that you could do it because uh, it's a great score. Oh, thank you very much. I believe in our last conversation you had mentioned that you you had said, and I don't necessarily, I don't think it necessarily sounds like it, but you had said that the theme to Cigarette Burns was kind of your way of ripping off Suspiria. Exactly. No, I, I I made a purpose of trying to rip it off. That was that was the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of my dad agreed. He's like, yeah, let's we should probably rip it off. Let's do it. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> do you recall how many days it took you to to kind of write and record it? Yeah, actually, I I do remember that. You know, I um I was really excited to do it, and uh, I had prepared a bunch of ideas beforehand. So when we did go into the studio, uh, it actually went by pretty quickly. I think it only took maybe a week to do the first pass anyways. And we weren't in there, you know, all day. It was just we only had a number of hours every day that we could work there. Uh, you know, it wasn't back in those days. I didn't have my own setup. My dad didn't have his own setup. So we actually had to go into a studio to do it. Yeah. Um, nowadays, obviously, we have our own gear and stuff like that. So we can just work whenever we want for however long we want. Yeah. But we were kind of behind the times even though it was in the mid 2000s um we were still going into a studio and you know paying time (laughs) to uh you know it's kind of crazy when you think about it now but because nobody does that now i mean uh, you know in terms of soundtracks or anything like that i mean unless you're you're recording an orchestra or something like that sure but yeah i I tried to do it quickly because i didn't want i didn't want to spend too much money on the uh on the studio and you know uh, i just wanted to get it done. So it went by pretty quickly. In my book, Scored to Death Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, your dad kind of describes his process as sitting down. He doesn't really even think about the music until it's time to work on it. And then he sits down and he watches and he kind of improvises stuff and lets the score find its way that way. Do you have a similar process? Or do you work differently? Oh, exactly the same. I And I and I got that idea from my dad to do it that way. For, for Cigarette Burns, I had just kind of knocked out the theme a little bit or I had a basic idea for the theme and and I just picked out a couple of different sounds but really everything else was just just like that I just uh, kind of improvised it you know the the main theme is a, is a is a piano piece that can we were, that we are talking about but there's also some pretty in, cool and interesting synth stuff going on and uh some of the stuff is not unlike the lost themes things <laughs> oh yes <laughs> <laughs> Uh, specifically uh, when it, with pro-life, I feel like the that kind of lullaby main theme. That could live comfortably on a, on the Lost Themes album. Yeah, that was... Uh, so the difference between Cigarette Burns and pro-life was actually pro-life, we... I'd worked really closely with my dad on that one. Uh, we actually went in, again, we went into the studio. We went into the studio together. We were both there for a lot of it. So kind of has a different feel, I think, from Cigarette Burns. Yeah. And that theme, again, I, I kind of wrote the theme beforehand, but um, that kind of lullaby theme, again, we decided, yeah, let's kind of rip off uh, Suspiria again. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
it's a motif. Yeah. There's yeah, a piece. Unfortunately, I can't remember the, the name of the piece off the top of my head right now. And I couldn't remember it when I talked to your dad either, but there's a piece in the score for vampires mm-hmm. that sounds exactly like Suspiria. Like in the best way. Oh, really? You know, not you know, not in a in a bad way. Yeah. Totally in the best way. And you only get a snippet of it on the soundtrack at like the top of one of the tracks. And I and I mentioned it to your dad and he's like, Really? I said, Did was it your intention to kind of do Suspiria? He's like, I don't remember. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know When in he, doubt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when in doubt. We're both such huge fans of that score and the movie in general that um you know, it's like, exactly, when in doubt, you know, just rip off Suspiria. That's all you need to do. <laughs> uh, you said that your dad, had, on Cigarette Burns, your dad had given you notes. Do you recall what kind of notes your dad would give you? And did he give you any direction going into it? Um, yes. Uh, I remember the notes. You know, actually, the direction going into it, I don't remember. I'm sure I'm sure he had some thoughts. But honestly, I don't remember. But I do remember, um, Is interesting, there's a major part that I had written, or I had you know, put down a kind of a big kind of pipe organ section that was pretty long and pretty, pretty complicated. And my dad said, you know, this is, this is not what we want for this part. This is going in a completely wrong direction. And so I cut the whole part out and did a completely different feel with uh just really kind of more minimal synths and stuff like that yeah i'm really hoping one day they'll release those soundtracks on you know whatever cd or or online or digital or whatever um, we've had such trouble trying to get those things released, you know? Yeah. Well, Cla- I think Claudio Simonetti released his, but he might've kind of, he might've had, really? he might've had that like written into his contract or something when they did them. Cause I think, I think he released the, the ones he did for Argento. Oh yeah. It doesn't surprise me that your dad would give a direction like that. Your dad is kind of the king of minimal scoring. Mm-hmm. When I talked to Claudio Simonetti, I was talking to him about your, in my book, I was talking about your father and he said, the way your dad's scores are like, he could play one note and it's just like, it's perfect. Right. <laughs> and right. It, and it's Carpenter, you know, it's, it's, it's one of yeah. those things. He's definitely, it, that's kind of his style. So I could see him, you know, wanting that for, I mean, and he basically, he told Neil Morricone like, Hey, let's tone it down a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You Let's, know, and that that's yeah. And when when I have to do music for my dad too, he I really have to force myself to to tone it down basically because I I have a tendency to you know as you can hear with my my new album it it gets kind of elaborate and yeah yeah sometimes that doesn't work especially for my dad um, you know well there's something about horror and I've talked uh, about this at length with some of the composers both in the book and and also on this podcast where there's something about film scoring in general, obviously, but also horror where like repetition and simplicity. Yes. 
yes are kind of like really the key and it's why you know it's it's why like your theme for cigarette burns works is because it's just like this repetitive thing and it's just kind of locks it locks the audience in there mm. i mean when you look at uh some of the great horror film scores of all time most memorable ones you have jaws which is like two notes mm-hmm. <laughs> right right you know you have the just that one note stabbing sound from psycho uh, right your dad's halloween score is a perfect example stuff like that it's something about the simplicity just kind of works i mean but in a lot of ways like that works for pop music too and i think you know right uh you know repetition obviously pop music and in some ways mm-hmm. you know rock and roll and uh pop music are you know sustained with like a lot of times with like three chords simplicity it just right. <laughs> it's a way of you know just grabbing hold it's the hook yeah exactly and especially with uh you know horror music you know repetition can get very unnerving and uh i i'm, I'm personally very sensitive to uh, repetition in music and that you can use that grinding to really make you uneasy, you know, that's yeah. that's a tool that, I'm, you know, I think everyone probably uses when they're scoring for horror. Yeah, I mean, well, with, for instance, with pro-life, there's, you know, there's a large chunks of that film or television show, however you want to describe it, are kind of blanketed with like this steady beat, mm-hmm. like electronic beat kind of throughout it, which, you know, is obviously playing on the tension of the, mm-hmm. of the siege. You said your father was a little more involved with the pro-life score. In what way? Yeah, so I I think we really basically wrote that one together. Um, So we both went into the studio and we both had our own, you know, keyboards set up. And we basically uh, improvised it together for the most part. Maybe there were some days where I was just there by myself, but uh, we had a really great time doing that. It was so in cigarette, cigarette burns, I was basically by myself. And then I played what I had done for my dad later. And he said, yeah, let's go with this or no, let's not do that. But for pro-life, we were really in it together. And um, it was a lot of fun. I, I liked making that one. Uh, a lot. You said that, uh, you know, back in the day, you and your dad didn't really have your own setups. Did you still play music a lot together or because you didn't have equipment? You guys didn't do that a lot growing up. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I didn't really explain that. We, we had uh, equipment like, we, you know, we had instruments and stuff. We, yeah. I've always had that around the house. But what we didn't have was the recording uh, yeah. setup. That that was that was of any of any, you know, it, was, it wasn't very good. I think we had like a DAT player or DAT recording set up which was not easy to use and um so when we really had to do something when there was some work that had to be done you know we obviously had to go somewhere else we talked about when you were in high school and you fell in love with kind of the synth-based progressive rock bands but was your dad any kind of influence on your love and pursuing of synth music yeah i'm sure i'm sure he was and but probably not i wasn't conscious of it you know it was more i mean we had and still do have a bunch of synths around the house. You know, it was just uh, that that was kind of always there. So it was probably kind of an unconscious influence. Yeah. Now that you've played many of your dad's themes and recorded them and played them live, do you have a particular score of your dad's that you love? Mm, 
you know, I love them all, but uh, if I had to pick one that I love the most. I know Big Trouble is your favorite film of your dad's. Right, right. That's a good question on the score. I, I'm not really sure which one I like the best. Hmm. I mean, Escape from New York is is great fun. I love playing that one. <laughs> and the version we do is is kind of kind of rocking, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's fun to play that one. But uh, I, I love all. I love everything. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way with your dad's music. <laughs> yeah. People are always like, "What do you? Which one do you like best?" I'm like, "Well, I like Christine, but I also like this one." Yeah. I I do like Christine a lot. I feel like Christine is underappreciated both as a film and a score mm. because I, I think when we think of the movie Christine your dad's music gets overshadowed by all the rock and roll tracks right that are in right. that movie right um, and probably has less music written for it than most of your dad's right. other films but I just I, right. love, I love that score so much and it's my favorite track that you guys play live is the the encore oh cool yeah it. but so you score these things for your dad. You, you're doing the Lou Dream thing. The first Lost Themes album was just stuff that you and your dad were Daniel and Daniel were just kind of doing through email, right? Just for fun. Yeah. Um, so I, I can just briefly explain that first Lost Themes. So I this was before I had uh, moved to Japan. Uh, we, my dad, we had finally gotten. Uh, a nice computer with uh, you know uh, recording setup so we could record uh, properly without having to go to a studio like like I had mentioned before yeah. and uh, so we were just messing around and uh, recording stuff and just having fun then I left for Japan and my dad's music attorney asked if he had any music that he wanted to release you know to do a, an album or something like that and so he thought of the stuff that we had done together so then he uh, asked Daniel to join, and they wrote a bunch of stuff together and asked me to send some stuff from Japan via email, and so we all kind of worked that way. That's how the first Lost Themes came about. I know your dad refers to Daniel as his godson, and I know that he also talks about how he lived at your dad's house for a while. Like, what, what is the really Like, did you grow up with Daniel? Yeah, he's kind of like an older brother. He did. He lived at the house for a number of years. I think he is officially my dad's godson. I'm not really sure how that works because my dad's not Christian, uh, <laughs> so I don't know. I'm not. I don't, I don't really know how that works. But anyways, yeah, he's 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 family. I mean, uh, he's a member of the family. It, we all feel that way, anyways. Yeah, yeah. Now maybe this is an odd question, but. Is Lost Themes really a John Carpenter album, or is it a Carpenter and uh, Davies album? Oh, that's a good question. I, I, th- I think it's a John Carpenter album because both Daniel and I, our, our purposes were to write music in my dad's style. We weren't writing our own music, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yes, I think the Lost Themes albums are definitely John Carpenter albums, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, because when you listen to it, there's definitely, I mean, at least now, because I, I've heard, I've listened to so m- much of your stuff, there's definitely, I can hear, you know, like, like the track Mystery, for instance. Yes. <laughs> that sounds very Cody Carpenter to me. Yes, and I, I did write that one. You're right. And very good. <laughs> <laughs> and I would even argue that it sounds very Decola. Oh. Yeah. 
sounds like that could be in Rocky Four. That a lot, a lot oh, really? Oh. A, you know, there's definitely parts of it that sound like you could definitely imagine Rocky running up a mountain to that music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you guys do the first Lost Themes, and it's kind of uh, started off for fun and just playing around gets released and then you're asked to come and do a second one how did the production of the second one differ yeah so the second one by that time i was back living in la and uh we were all together basically for that one so we we wrote everything together is a much easier process and i think the, the production is a lot better on the on that one than the first one simply because we were all in the same room you know i love that you guys on both tours played distant dream live Oh yeah, that song is so rocking. Yeah, that's a that's a fun one to play for sure. Can you give any insight into the writing of Distant Dream? Yes, I can. Uh, that one in particular kind of is interesting how it came about. So, kind of the main riff my dad came up with, and uh, we were kind of playing around with it. And then I remember I think Daniel took the session home to his place, and he came back the next day and he said. You know, I kind of did this this thing. I kind of altered it a little bit. Uh, what do you think? And it was, you know, the uh, kind of bridge section, kind of the breakdown. And it has this kind of rock bit with the, the drums kind of doing kind of solo kind of thing. He, Daniel had kind of taken the intro that my dad had done and kind of altered it a bit and came up with that. And so we stuck that in there. And that's kind of how it came about. My my thought was that it kind of had kind of a Big Trouble in Little China feel, that kind of riff, the bass line. Yeah. So, yeah, that one was a, that one was a fun one. I, and I'm really happy how that came out. What about uh, White Pulse? So yeah, so White Pulse, and this one I kind of wanted to borrow from The Exorcist. So my dad and I kind of uh, worked out that uh, kind of bellish intro bit with the kind of uh, time signature is not not exactly the same as The Exorcist, I don't think. But uh, that's kind of where we where we started on that one. Some of the other songs that you guys, you know, you also played live from the first album, Vortex, and I think that was maybe the track that got released first. Yes. You know, it's interesting because I don't feel like a lot of... Yes, I mean it does sound like your dad. You know, they sound like John Carpenter, but they're all, but I would say that not a lot of it sounds like your dad's scores. Mm, yes. I would say from the first album definitely there's parts of Vortex. definitely sounds like something could have been like in they live or something mm-hmm. do you have any recollections of vortex vortex i i 
you know, that was kind of the single from the first one. And funny enough, that was the one that I had the least involvement on. <laughs> so I think the less that I am involved in, the more the more people like it. <laughs> the more commercial it is. <laughs> the more commercial it is, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that one was, I was already gone by that point. And uh, I think that one was my dad and Daniel, they knocked that one out. And I maybe I contributed a little bit of synth stuff, but yeah. I I really don't. Have I don't know how the, the how the actual themes came about on that one. We talked about it briefly, but like I said, mystery. The first part of that song definitely sounds like Cody Carpenter. Yeah, that one. I, I think I I sent the first line. I was I was in Japan and I, I knocked it out and sent it over, but it was not to a click. It was not in time, so <laughs> they had to kind of piece it together uh, to make it kind of perfect you know uh yeah because i didn't have a recording setup or anything like that so i was just kind of doing stuff you know very uh it was very rough recording kind of stuff so they really had to clean it up yeah but anyways that's that that initial line was something i i kind of thought of and then they kind of created the back half and kind of glued it on exactly so these albums come out and it kind of triggers this resurgence for your dad's music that, you know, is obviously you're a part of, and then you guys to tour. Mm -hmm. Had you had a lot of live performing experience before that? I wouldn't say a lot. I, I had performed before in various different circumstances in bands and, uh, yeah, mostly bands. Um, I played drums in a band before play some keys. I played my own stuff live a bit here in Japan, but nothing like a real tour. Daniel, on the other hand, he's been involved in his own bands and some other bands uh, for a long time, and he's he had been on tour many times. So he he was kind of uh, telling us how it's going to be, uh, and it was <laughs> yeah. you know showing us the ropes and stuff like that. Because my dad had also not really done a tour before. He probably had really even played live since he was in high school. You know, I think you're right. Except for playing at rap parties and stuff with the Coupe de Bill. Right, you're right. Yeah. How did you guys decide? what movie themes you were going to play. Yeah, that was, um, it took a while to figure out which songs we wanted to do. You know, obviously we had to do the, the main, the ones that everyone knows. But, you know, for the first tour, uh, 2016, we also wanted to do some of the Lost Theme stuff, or a lot of the Lost Theme stuff. Yeah, so yeah. we really had to kind of find a balance. and uh, It took a while to figure it out. You know, the, the, the last tour we did uh, last year, we kind of, uh, dropped a couple of the lost theme stuff and did a did more of the actual movie themes. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's just you know, we just kind of worked it out together. I don't know, really, nothing interesting about how that came about. <laughs> you know, I I told you last time we talked that you know I loved I personally I'm almost embarrassed to say how many times I saw you guys live, but uh, you know I was going for the record, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I uh, I. I I loved hearing the Lost Theme stuff live. Yeah, I mean, to me, it played better live. Mm. In 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 a lot of ways, it was more realized. It seemed more appropriate in the live setting. Mm. Uh, not to not to say that I didn't like seeing the other stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and I and like I said, I think my my favorite track of you guys playing live was Christine. But it was also because you guys kind of reimagined it right as like a pop ballad almost instrumental right
how did reimagining some of these scores? Some of them are pretty straight, just in a band mm-hmm. format, but it was something like Christine, you guys play very differently than it's presented in the movie. Yeah. Um, so something, how, does, how does something like that come about? So for the Christine song, you know, the original is very, very repetitive. And so my dad didn't really want to do it straight like that, you know, like he had done it for the movie. So, uh, you know, we thought we have a, obviously we have a rock band with two guitars. Let's make it into a rock song. And so, uh, you know, worked out the kind of the different chord changes and it kind of has like a, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus structure. Because the original is very different yeah. uh, in the movie, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but it's what I like about it. I, I mean, I almost almost wish that the other stuff was reimagined. Oh yeah, more in that more in that vein. Really? Okay. But I understand that I'm that I'm probably in the minority. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I imagine a lot of people want to hear it the way they know it, but right. you know, like for instance, yeah, I love Goblin, but I loved Simonetti's band Daimonia and how they reimagined oh, yeah. how they reimagined all the Goblin and the Emerson stuff for for Inferno mm-hmm. as like a progressive like as rock tunes, not soundtrack. I'm just into that kind of thing. I totally agree. I'm I'm with you on that one for sure. So, guys, tours. There any you guys end up afterwards end up rec- uh, recording an anthology album? Was there t- discussion during the tour of releasing a live album? Yeah, you know, I they've been talking about it. I I don't know what's going on. I, I hope so. Because uh, it, it seemed, at least to me, as like a I guess as a fan, it seemed like the anthology album came out as like. We're not doing a live album, but here you can hear what we did. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> you know, because it was the arrangements yeah. of all the themes, uh, with with the addition with the addition of of a handful of more themes. You're right, right. I, yeah, I guess you're probably right. I I really I really don't know um, if if there if there is a live album or there will be a live album uh, yeah. or if the anthology is the live album. Uh, <laughs> I honestly I don't really know. Yeah, I wish yeah. I. I wish I could tell you. Uh, so you guys head out on tour again to promote the anthology album. And like you said, you dropped some of the uh, Lost Theme stuff, which, right. like I said, was my fav- was some of my favorite stuff of the show. But as someone that saw you three times the first time, <laughs> I was kind of appreciative that it was a different set list, at least a little bit, Yeah. second time around. So it was kind of cool to see the additions of things like Starman and uh, Santiago and body bags, which was pretty rock and live. Oh yeah. yeah. So going on tour again was was there any kind of difference? Obviously, it was it was a shorter tour, I would imagine. I think we just did North America, um, but yeah, you know, we it was it was all the same guys, and so we were kind of more used to it, and it was it was uh, it was it was great fun. It, I mean, it's always great fun, um, but it was uh, maybe it's a little bit easier the second time around just because we had done it once and we kind of knew what to expect. Yeah, my dad did get really sick. I think we were in was it New York, 
or Boston or something, he got a really bad cold. Daniel got a really bad cold as well, but my dad was just, yeah, he was in bed and stuff, but he still came out and performed in New York. I think it was the New York show. I'm not, I'm not sure. Which was the show I was at. <laughs> well, really? Oh. Well, you saw him very sick. Uh, I yeah. think it was New York. He uh, seemed, it was on the East Coast. At least for the meet and greet, he seemed pretty miserable. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if that's always the case, because I imagine they're not fun to do. But if he, <laughs> if he was sick, it's uh, it's understandable. Yeah. But yeah. other than that, it, it was pretty smooth. You know, like I said, it was fun as a fan to have a different show than the first tour. Any desire in the future to score more things for you? Oh, for sure. Especially with my dad. Uh, or for my dad, you know, that's, that's really what I love. I love working with him. Definitely desires there. Yeah. Is there any talk yet of you guys doing the Halloween score for the new movie? I don't know. I, I hope so. I really do. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen there either. Uh, I think my dad wants to do it for sure. We'll see. I, I really, I really can't say right now. I think they're filming it now. So yeah, hopefully things will get decided pretty soon. So interdependence, Cody Carpenter's interdependence. Yes. That's the new album. It's uh, got a very different vibe than Alternate Universe. Yes. I'd say a lot of it is jazz fusion. Yes. Definitely. So let's talk about it. When did these tunes start coming to you? What was the, what was the plan? Where were the influences? Sure. So I've been writing this kind of music for a long, long time since I was young, because uh, this is kind of really what I love. Um, this kind of uh, progressive rock, kind of jazz fusion stuff. And so I finally decided for the next thing I did, I wanted to get some other musicians involved because in the past I had just done everything on my own. And so I asked uh, Jimmy Haslip, the bass player. I had worked with him around the time of Cigarette Burns, actually. Or yeah, maybe around that time. I had worked with him on something completely different. And I, I kind of lost touch with him. So I called him up and said, uh, I'd love to see you. Uh, would you would you want to you know play on my album? And, and he said, yeah. So um, I got him in there and he had worked with uh, Virgil Donati, and he, I, I'm a huge fan of Virgil's, and so I, it was it was amazing because he hooked me up with Virgil, and he played drums on one of one of the tracks, and it was just mind blowing. There, I mean, these guys are just unbelievable musicians and just top class. And so then we got Virgil on the one song, and uh, initially I had played all the keys, all the guitars, and all the drums, and when we were mixing it. I uh, just wasn't happy with how the drums were sounding. So I decided to ask Scott Sieber, who had played drums with us on my dad's tour, to replace most of my drums. I think some of them are still in there. There's one song with has my drums. And so that was the band. And um, that's kind of how the album came about. What's your writing process? How does it differ from when, when you're scoring stuff? You know, actually, it's kind of the same. I just kind of sit down and kind of improvise. And if, if an idea sounds cool, I'll record it and then kind of edit it and then expand on it, uh, that kind of thing. It's, it's actually pretty much the same process for me. Does the sound you're using at the time, you know, if you're playing on a synth, does the tone, does the, mm -hmm. how does the tone influence the the creative process 
Oh, super, super important. I mean, that's really where it comes from is this, is the sound of the instrument. If I'm writing something just on an acoustic piano, or if I'm using a you know some sort of patch on a keyboard or something like that, that really dictates how where it goes, where where the sound, where the the song come, where the song goes. It's uh, super important. That's kind of the it's kind of your color palette, I guess you want to say. If I uh, I don't always just write stuff just on an acoustic piano, which I know a lot of composers do. They'll just write everything on the piano. I, I really need the sound. You know, I really need the color, and that that sort of kind of brings it out of me. You know, what equipment wise, what are you what are you using these days? So for that one, I mean, for for uh, interdependence, I used a lot of the Arturia plugins, kind of emulations of kind of classic. Uh, synths yeah. uh, and stuff like that. I used a lot of those. And what else did I use? Uh, B3 organ, of course. I mean, that's you know, that's kind of uh, if you if you're a fan of Keith Emerson at all, that's kind of <laughs> you, you need that Hammond organ on there. Are there any Suspiria ripoffs on the album? Ooh, good question. Good question. Hold on, let me think for a second. Uh, you know, probably not. You know, at when I was writing all of these tunes, I was listening to a lot of Return to Forever, and I think that's kind of a big influence on this album in particular. Yeah. I don't think I was listening to a lot of Goblin at that time, <laughs> uh, but you know what? It, there's probably in there somewhere. Uh, if I if I listen hard, I'll probably find it somewhere. I'll listen. I'll take. I'll listen with a little more of a. Uh... A discerning ear, and I'll let you know if I hear anything. <laughs> okay, yeah, definitely tell me. <laughs> is there any uh, any track in particular on this album that, uh, like, does it have a single? I don't think there's really a single. I we released the um, the track with Virgil Donati on it first, just because I thought it was the most powerful. I guess. Do you, um, do you recall the name of that track? Oh yeah, it's Nebulous is the power. It's the it's the last uh, mm-hmm. track on the album. I mean, his drumming is so just so powerful and so incredible and so unique and so creative. And it's, he's someone you just can't reproduce. And, uh, I just having him on that song is just such an honor and so amazing. And that song, I just, it, it felt that song came out the best. So anyways, that was the first song we released and it's actually a free download. Um, so you don't even need to get the album. You can just get that one song. Well, I love it. Thank you. You know, I'm a guitar player. So when it came to, jazz i tended to and still tend to gravitate towards guitar players so i i went through a big alan holdsworth phase and oh yeah a lot of the stuff tony williams was doing i mean he's a drummer but like the trio of oh, doom yeah. and stuff like that so mm-hmm. that is stuff that i haven't visited in a long time and listening to this album kind of reminded me of that stuff and so it made me want to you know yes. like, oh yeah i love that st- i love that kind of music too I yeah <laughs> i've been so caught up in horror movie soundtracks for the last three years <laughs> <laughs> well so so jimmy haslip he he played with alan holdsworth and virgil they had a trio um which is how he knew that's which is how he knew virgil to introduce you know him to me yeah yeah so yeah that's that whole stuff is a huge part of this of this album yeah so i mean it's it's really cool. I mean, it's much different than the Lost Theme stuff, obviously, and it's different from Alternate Universe and different from some of the uh, some of the Ludrium stuff I've I've listened to. So, uh, I think it's really awesome that for someone that 
has yet to decide whether they want to pursue music. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'm doing it now. You're right. <laughs> that, you, that you've been able to have such an eclectic output. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything else you want to say about this album or working with your dad or anything I didn't ask that everybody else asks and I should have asked? Uh, I guess the only thing I'd want to say is that there's a lot more stuff coming from me personally. I have so much music on just... It's already written and it's just waiting to get made, basically. A lot of my own personal music. And I really want to start working again with my dad. So I'm hoping something will happen soon. So basically, just uh, stay tuned, I guess, is, is all I really want to say. Was there ever discussion, especially for the live shows, of you guys doing the theme song to Big Trouble in Little China with you on vocals? Oh, man. I, well, not with me on vocals. No, God, no. But you <laughs> but, have a good voice. I, I well, I don't know about that, but if we do it, and I'd love to do it, I, and I wanted to do it before, my dad would have to sing it, and we'd have to get they'd have to get the the Coupe de Ville's together. That that that's necessity for that song. Anyway. One for one night only, maybe for one night and for only one song. <laughs> oh, I would love to hear the Waiting Out the Eighties album too. Oh, the, the whole, whole album? album? Oh man, <laughs> at least some of the songs. I'll tell my dad. She's got friends in LA. is a great tune. I love. Maybe I, love, I could get him up there. That would, that would be great. I love a lot of that. A lot of the stuff on that album. <laughs> well, Cody, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. I always have fun talking to you. Oh yes, thank you. It's always a good time. From one Transformers the movie fan to another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you. I appreciate. You're making music for me to listen to and for sitting down and talking about this stuff. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It's, it's, it's great. I, I really enjoy it. And for being a good sport about talking maybe at nauseum about your father. No, not at all. It's, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. So there it is. I need to once again thank Cody for taking the time to be on the show. Hopefully, if he ends up scoring the next Halloween with his father, he will come back on to discuss it. I also need to thank him for providing some of the music clips from Masters of Horror that were featured in this episode. I also need to give a shout out to Steve Cropper. Those snippets of interview with him talking about vampires are from a 2011 interview we did together as a promotion for his album, Dedicated, a salute to the Five Royales. If you don't know who he is, he's probably best known to film fans as one of the guitar players for the Blues Brothers Band, but I urge you to look him up and check out the immense catalog of amazing music he has made with artists such as Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Booker T and the MGs, Albert King. The list of legendary musicians he's worked with goes on and on. He is truly one of the greats. If you've been enjoying the show, the book, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other places you buy books. Or you can order a signed copy from me directly. Just contact me through scoredtodeath.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at scored to death also please check me out on my other podcast saturday night movie sleepovers which you can find on itunes google play and most other places you find podcasts and of course on facebook and twitter at sat sleepovers you can check out cody and his music at codycarpenterofficial.com or at ludrium.bandcamp.com that's ludrium l-u-d-r-i-u-m dot bandcamp.com and I should note that the short clips of music used in this podcast were used strictly to put aspects of the interview into context, 
to audibly illustrate specific things discussed and for educational purposes. Much of Cody Carpenter's music and most of the music discussed today is available on Spotify, and I will create a Spotify playlist to act as a companion to this episode. The soundtracks and albums discussed on this episode were Alternate Universe by Cody Carpenter, which can be found on ludrium.bandcamp.com. Vampires, music from the motion picture by John Carpenter can be found on CD from Milan Records. Christine, original motion picture soundtrack score by John Carpenter in association with Alan Howarth can be found on CD and vinyl LP from Verez Saraband. Lost Themes, Lost Themes 2, and John Carpenter Anthology, Movie Themes 1974 to 1998 can be found on CD, vinyl LP, and digital download from Sacred Bones Records. The music from Masters of Horror, Cigarette Burns, and Pro-Life is currently not available, but the episodes themselves can be found on DVD and Blu-ray from Stars Anchor Bay and on Amazon and other services for streaming. And of course, Cody Carpenter's Interdependence can be found on CD and digital download from Blue Canoe Records. Thank you for listening. Come back in two weeks for another in-depth conversation with one of Har's greatest composers. Mm-hmm.